G'day, humans. Welcome to your refuge from everyday squabbles. This is the place where we can lift our heads and think about things from a more enlightened perspective than we might in the normal, everyday course of events. There are certainly no taboos on this show. We can go beyond the echo chambers of social media feeds and simply talk about good arguments and bad arguments. I am here to sniff out the difference. A lot of the things we talk about will be wise, a lot will be deeply unwise, some will be funny, some scientific, some of them ugly, but all of these conversations, I hope, will make some of us just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, love him or hate him, he is one of the world's most provocative and interesting thinkers. Neuroscientist, writer, philosopher, podcaster, flamethrower, troublemaker, Sam Harris. He's been published everywhere, including the New York Times. His best-selling books, The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation, Eviscerated Religion, both Islam and Christianity. He's dabbled in philosophy with his books, The Moral Landscape and Free Will. And his new book, Making Sense, is a companion to his podcast of the same name. Great podcast. You should listen to it if you haven't. I could spend three hours with Sam Harris talking about nothing except the culture wars and political correctness and the breakdown of civil conversation, the madness of the far right and the far left, but I didn't. I didn't want to. He's done a lot on that elsewhere, if you want to hunt it down. I'm more interested in his thoughts as a neuroscientist, PhD and a philosopher of mind about what makes us conscious. How does it come to pass that living things feel anything at all? And will an artificial system ever have a sense of being inside itself the way that you do, the way that I do? Well, I assume you do. You might not. I can't be sure. That's part of the conversation. Sam is deeply embedded in the Silicon Valley in crowd. His podcast is a must-listen for the Elon Musks and Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. So, And, you know, he's a TED talker. and He floats in those circles. He's a confidant of the sorts of people who are right now developing the systems at Facebook and Google and elsewhere that will lead to artificial intelligence and will probably either enslave us or enhance and liberate us all. He is a bit of a persona non grata in much of the left-wing establishment for his blunt views on free speech, of which he's a big fan, and on Islam, not so much a big fan. And he's equally detested by the right for his hatred of Donald Trump and his hatred of the far right. If you've ever wondered how it came to be that you're capable of wondering anything at all, how 1.3 kilos of soggy meat can feel self-aware, then enjoy this fruitful and provocative conversation with the one and only Sam Harris. work normally. I mean, I just think for, for many, many people that will supersede any concern they have around the vaccine or, or they'll, they'll just kind of reformulate their sense of, well, you know, what what is it, what is in fact risky mm. in that case. Getting back to the lockdown and how many people don't have the luxury of being a Sam Harris during this interminable period when you can't really go outside or do anything. I saw a thing on Facebook, which I reposted at the beginning of the pandemic, where some self-help-oriented dude was, had, had tweeted and it had gone viral, if you don't come out of this quarantine with a new skill, your side hustle started, 
more knowledge, you never lacked time, you lacked discipline. And someone had scribbled mm. out, you never lack time, you lack discipline, and written in, you're doing just fine, we're going through a collective traumatic experience, not everyone has the privilege of turning a pandemic into something fun or productive, stay healthy. And I retweeted that because I was very much feeling uh, self-critical for not finally embarking on the novel I've always wanted to write, mm -hmm. you know, for not working out and getting healthy, for hanging around with my kids running all over the place and eating ice cream and watching Netflix. And there's a certain Silicon Valley sunniness, a kind of getting back to technocratic solutions to things like a life hacking technocracy of the soul mm -hmm. that I find increasingly obnoxious through this pandemic. And I know that you're in those circles, perhaps not of them, but the sort of Tim Ferriss, like, I can do every, anything, let's, like, figure out how the greatest people did things and then just copy them and pursue our own greatness seems oddly ill-suited to 2020 in my book. And I find it grating and somehow mm. deeply shallow. And I wonder where your, where your head is at in terms of having compassion for people who don't have their shit together during this time. Yeah, well, I think both are true within their area of application. I, mean, I think the first thing to, to recognize is that the, the experience of this pandemic is not just one thing, right? It's, 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 there's a, a, a vast range of outcomes for people here once you lock things down or, or uh, you know, pull the plug on, on uh, the economy. And I mean, some people's business lives only improved, right? Some people doubled their their revenue because they were in the, they were just by, by sheer accident, mm. they were in, you know, I mean, to just to take Jeff Bezos as the ultimate example, right? I mean, just Amazon stock has soared, you know, on, on any given week, he, he's probably made a billion dollars a day uh, because he, he's just, he's the winner in a winner take all game over there in online retail and it's amazing so uh, that's great for Jeff but there are many other people who are who were at every place on the spectrum with respect to having their shit together right they were incredibly successful uh, business people who you know were extremely wealthy and and kind of seemingly playing all their cards right who just happened to be in the wrong sector of the economy, like the restaurant business, and are in the process of getting just zeroed out. You know, I mean, just like just, and again, this is just a spin of the roulette wheel. There's just no rhyme or reason to this. You just happen to be in a business that was excruciatingly vulnerable to a pandemic. Um, and so, and then there's everything in between. And then there are people who, were you know already poor, already in a bad marriage, already uh, sick, already in free fall in some way, and this has only compounded all of their problems, right? So it's you know it's totally appropriate, it seems to me. I mean, it's really necessary ethically to recognize that there are just massive disparities in luck here that that dictate totally different experiences of, of what's mm. going on. And uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to just 
give a generic recommendation to everyone that, you know, here, download this app and, you know, you'll learn to play guitar in no time. <laughs> uh, so it's, um, you know, so that said, you know, everyone, the principle by which anyone would bring more order to their lives, I don't think those those principles change depending on which situation you're in. It's just the question is, which which problem do you need to address first, right? I mean, so the principle by which you would stabilize a a bad marriage or or unwind it in the most in in the least painful way. Um, or, you know, take care of your kids at home when they, when the schools are closed. Or, I mean, like, I, I don't think there are thousands of right answers to those basic questions. There, there are a few right answers. Uh, but you know, some people are in, are in, you know, very precarious situations in terms of their, you know, material, you know, physical circumstance. And, uh, some people aren't. And, and, you know, that variable alone is massive. Uh, and then there are people who have, who, who seem lucky in every conceivable way, but they're, they're still, you know, deeply unhappy, right? I mean, they're just not—they're not suited to being alone. They're, they're, or they're in a bad—they're in a bad marriage, and now they're you know, locked in a box with someone who they fell out of love with, you know, five years ago. Uh, there's, there's just many ways to to not uh, be happy in this mm. circumstance, and um, yeah, so it's—I think it's. It's. Uh, I guess the, the you thing have that to acknowledge I'm, that. Yeah, the thing that I'm pointing to is, I suppose, the pursuit not of happiness and not of contentment and not of generosity of spirit, but the pursuit of, I don't know, some kind of excellence. It almost strikes me as being that there's a mindset that has come out during the pandemic, uh, a can-do, life-hacky mindset, which to me is 10% mm. of the way to Donald Trump in the sense that it's focused on uh, uh, superficial rewards instead of kind of deep spiritual contentment. And I think part of what, like Parkinson's law, the, the old law that that work will expand to fill the time that you've got to do it, is mm. definitely affecting a lot of people, myself included. When I had those long days and weeks of full-on lockdown, when Sydney was in, in lockdown initially, um, you know, there were simple tasks that should only have taken me two or three hours that would take, that would take a week because uh, I was procrastinating because there were always dishes to do or there was always something to clean or there was always, you know, and my mind was just not in a place to to be spiritually well enough to, to be as productive as I might have liked. And so I find myself constantly in tension, uh, and I think this is, the pandemic has brought this out in a lot of people, between judging myself for, for not achieving external um, professional rewards and mm. I don't know if the I don't know if the align I don't know if there's a perfect alignment between my desire to make the most of my time and advance professionally and productively, and what is actually going to make me happy. Like maybe I should have spent some of those weeks uh, sitting outside in the yard and looking at trees. Yeah, well, that, it's hard to argue against that. I mean, that's I guess it depends on uh, what you're doing with your mind while your while your eyes are pointed at the trees. But you know, if you're <laughs> judging really myself, at them, Sam, I, judging I, myself, <laughs> I'm a fan of actually looking at the trees. It's not that these these life hacking answers are necessarily wrong, right? It, it, it is just true that take you know take the the classic you know the, the 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 life hack that was a hack before anyone knew this phrase life hacking you know just just if you want to get stuff done you know make a list of the things you want to get done write write down your goals 
right? Um, you know, the, write, write down three things that you want to get done today. And, you know, at the end of the day, see if you got those things done. Right? Mm. Um, that's that's a tool. It's a, it's a device for prioritizing your time. And it's it can sound trite, but there's a difference between doing them, doing that and not doing it, especially if you're the kind of person who gets distracted. You you know, you you think you're going to get a lot of work done today, but then you open your email and you get bounced around by other people's claims on your time. And then you spend a little time on social media and then all of a sudden, look, it's time for lunch. Uh, and then you had a phone call you weren't expecting. And then the, the day is gone and you've done nothing that was that that is even close to being one of your priorities. Do you right? have a spy camera in my home, Sam? You're, you're describing you're describing my life during now the this, pandemic. This is uh, many people's lives, but you know, you know, it's um, so you know, if you talk to uh, the the Silicon Valley type, uh, who says, okay, well, I want you to write down three important things in order of their importance, uh, and just before you do anything else. Uh, when you get up after getting up tomorrow morning, you do the first one, right? Uh, now that's just, it's a, you know, applied by rote, you know, however seemingly um, slavishly, it still can have an effect, right? It's it's still, I mean, because again, you'll, you'll be the person who did that one important thing even before breakfast, right? Um, and that'll be a different day than having done nothing insofar as, you know, it really was an important thing to get done. And so either there, there are, there's a, an absolute blizzard of, of advice of that sort that, it, you know, if you take any bit of it, uh, can have an effect and it, and, and, it, and it can amount, even if it seems superficial or, you know, self directed in a way that seems, kind of petty, right? Even if it's it puts you more in the Tony Robbins side of the bookstore than in the, you know, the, the Socrates side, um, it still can amount to wisdom if applied and and it proves useful, right? Mm. And and so it's just it's like I'm not I'm not especially cynical about the way people, you know, f- you know, f- figure out how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps it's just it, it because it, it can be done i mean it's like and and so much change personally is incremental right it's just like it's it's just getting you know one percent better you know every day or every week and then you you know after six months you turn around and you realize wow this is this is actually really different this part of my life is really different and you know so so you know diet and fitness are you know, obvious examples of this, where it's like, there's nothing you can do today to radically change your physical body. I mean, just 24 hours is not enough time to eat enough good food and eschew enough bad food and work out hard enough, right? So it's just, so the idea that you could, you could change suddenly is, you know, no, obviously no one even thinks that, but, um, you almost can't fail if you, if you, if you consistently, applied any principle of you know eating better than you were the day before and working out more there's just no question you're going to change i mean no you know very few of us are truly cursed with you know with, with some you know totally anomalous 
biology or you know you know some other species of bad luck that make us un, unable to improve. So, and know, yet, if you polled people, Sam, I mean, a huge proportion of people would agree with the statement, "I could lose a couple of kilos," and well, maybe not Americans because they wouldn't know what a kilo is. They, I could lose a, a few right. pounds. Uh, and they don't. A few don't. stone. A few, st- a few stone, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, harder, exactly. harder still, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, a couple of ton. Uh, but they don't. So there's something about sustaining that uh, those yeah, incremental changes over time. It's hard to change, elusive. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to... But this is, this is one reason why all of this life hackery has something to it, because it, it's... On one level, it's it's a matter of of just getting honest with yourself about what it is you actually want. I mean, many of us say we want things, but when you look at our moment to moment choices, we we can we can realize that we we effectively don't want those things, or we or we want so many other things that are in contest with those things that we effectively don't want those things. So you know, many of us in the abstract want to get in better shape or want to lose weight. But, you know, I've got a pantry full of Oreos right now, and, you know, it's just a matter of time before they start calling my name. Because, mm. I want, you know, the truth is I want Oreos. Um, so, I, you know, I'm committed to my, my fitness within certain limits, and at the moment, those limits don't entail my giving up sugar entirely, right? I mean, the weird um, thing is there are sort of layers of different desire that different layers of self-awareness and consciousness, aren't there? Because you want to be fit, but then beneath that you want the Oreos. But actually beneath the Oreos, you also do want to be, you want to feel fit more than you want the, the feeling of the Oreo in your mouth. Uh, I mean, I the month before last, I lost 10 pounds and felt great and didn't miss not drinking and not eating poorly. I felt fine. Like I mm-hmm. genuinely didn't want the cookie. Uh, and... Then something happened, and whatever whatever life hackery didn't quite work, or I can't even remember what the trigger was, why I gave myself permission to to have a cheat meal or something, and then the cheat meals became a bit more frequent, and I put back on the majority of those 10 pounds, and now I'll probably take them off next month. But this is an experience of, uh, I suppose, when you're at your deepest when you're at the deepest layer of aspiration, there is no desire for the bad thing because what you actually want is your vision of your highest version of yourself. And that's inconsistent with stuffing your face full of cookies, which is a more superficial desire. So how do you drill down, Mr. Co- Mr. Consciousness Guru, to the to the highest aspiration and keep tapping that one? Well, again, it comes down to what you you truly want and and making it easier and easier to be consistent right so i mean if you it's I mean, this is this is not my observation you know many people in this space have have made it before me but it's just you know will willpower is a um, kind of a non-renewable resource at least over the course of a, of a day right you get you get sort of fatigued on that front as you keep deciding to be good and it's just much more effective to create a, a circumstance where it's it's very hard to be bad. I mean, with respect to, let's say, diet, right? So not having the cookies in the house makes it much easier to not eat cookies than relying on yourself to be restrained every time you walk into your kitchen. Mm. Um, and so that's, you know, but that, that's, a, that's a kind of hack that may, the, the utility of which many people have, 
you know, discovered and rediscovered and 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 advertised to others. And you know, so if you really if you really care, if one of the goals is to lose weight, I mean, at the moment, you know, that really just isn't one of my goals, right? Because my my weight is at at a you know a tolerable spot where it's like I, I basically feel fine and fit and. My vanity has been has been uh, humbled by the the passage of time, to the point where I you know I'm, I've reconciled that I'm uh, I'm uh, I, I look the way I look and you know the, the not a lot is going to change even if I do lose weight right so it's it's like it's you know I'm, I'm the as lack of the eight pack doesn't right? uh, doesn't keep you up at night yeah I mean it's you know I'm not a I'm not a fitness model but there there are other things that are priorities of mine which you know do require discipline and and the truth is even with respect to diet and exercise i'm fairly disciplined it's like i i'm disciplined in my moderation right i mean, I, I tend to work out more or less every day right so i have that you know going for me and um if i for whatever reason didn't work out for a few days in a row something would you know trip in me and i would feel like okay i, I it's really a priority to work out today right how so did you install that something i it, th- this has just been you know consistently working out most days for for many many years right like it like it, but we're working out in general for me is a very high priority just because i notice i mean because just because because i enjoy it so much and i i notice it's you know psychological utility and it's just it's just important for me to get up from my desk and do the opposite uh, do you, you know, enjoy so, doing it or do you enjoy having done it so much that you'll endure doing it um, I, I really do enjoy doing it. I mean, it, it does have the quality of, you know, something I, I crave to do. Um, so, and, and by working out, I mean, mo- mostly it's lifting weights, but it's, it's, um, you know, it, it could be some component of, you know, cardio or, uh, stretching too, but, you know, it's, it's mostly I, I really, the thing I would miss if I couldn't do it is, you know, lifting weights or doing pull-ups or, or you know, something that's that's kind of you know muscle building classically. Yeah. Um, I, I genuinely love to do it. I mean, I, I sort of dimly remember what it was like to not really want to do it, but you know, wish you want to get to the spot where you 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 know you have done it. But you know, it's been many years since I actually had resistance to working out. What habits in your life do you feel that resistance to that you know you should do? Uh, well, you know, eating better is one of them. I mean, so it's it's something that I'm, you know, I kind of cycle in and out of levels of resolve around having a a, a clean diet. And you know, lo- lockdown has not been great for that because you know, it's um, it's just you know th- what you can get in terms of you know fresh produce and all that stuff. It's um it's just it, the hassle factor of getting fresh food has has increased. You know, just prioritizing work stuff. I mean, I just have too much, uh, too many demands on my time and you know, too many things I, I want to do or, or w- will wish I had done. And it, it's hard to um, effectively prioritize things often. And there's no question that some amount of, you know, seemingly trivial hackery can be effective. I mean, just having a, a schedule, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I tend to do things fairly freestyle and impressionistically like i'll I'll Mm. suddenly decide what i you know what i feel like paying attention to right now and then do that and then bounce to the other thing uh that also seems important and it's there really hasn't been a problem with that because you know most of what's on my menu is is good stuff right so you know obviously I'll, i'll also 
burn a fair amount of time watching Netflix or or something at the end of the evening. But the in terms of how my days unfold, I tend to bounce between things that I won't regret having done. Right. Yeah. I mean, for for me, for me, the litmus test is at the end of a day or at the end of any period of time, when you look back on it, do you have obvious regrets? And and more and more, I mean, I, I'm more and more sensitive to the consequences of spending my time in various ways. And, and you know, so like things like social media use mm. or things that I've reconsidered, um, you know, fairly deliberatively in uh, in you know in recent years and and months i mean my the way i interact with twitter has for the most part fundamentally changed i'm not burning much time on it and when i am on it i'm i'm you know it, uh, there's there's much less that i'm paying attention to so i'm not it's it's not becoming a source of of uh toxicity in my life the way it used to that's where I've I've had to do, make some fairly conscious choices and and change my behavior. And again, when you when you slip, it's good to be mi- mindful of the consequences, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in so insofar as I have slipped there, it's it's you know it's kind of scared me straight, you know, because I, I can see okay, this is yeah, this is this is how hot this stove is when you touch. Yeah, the stove is still hot. How many times do you want to keep touching <laughs> it, right? Uh, and it's. Um, well, it's, and, it's, and it's designed to be enticing. It's designed to look like it's not as hot as it is. Uh, when you're talking about social right. media, you know, I mean, the algorithms are, are designed to lure you in like a like a fish bait, and uh, and then keep you there. Um, are there other things that? How do you keep the guardrail when you're impressionistically bouncing around the things that you wanted to get done that day? How do you keep the guardrails on to make sure that you don't topple off? I mean, social media is an obvious one which you can just exclude, but there are things right. like. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking because I work the same. I work very much the same way. But for example, um, the state of Queensland uh, declared all of Greater Sydney a COVID hotspot, which meant that my upcoming trip to the Great Barrier Reef next month is off the cards because they're not going to let me in. So then I'm looking at other places that we might be able to go in my state without leaving the state. And you know, that's just a browser. That's just one browser mm. away from the uh the stuff that i'm writing and uh, all of a sudden uh, 43 minutes has passed and i'm looking at uh places we might be able to go for 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 christmas does that not happen right right well, yeah, well it does and I, i've to some degree accepted that as just part of uh, part of life right i mean it's, it's and it, it's not always wasted i mean so, you know at some point you have to do that if you if you do want to take a vacation you have to figure out where you're going to go and you know if if your partner's not not going to do it. You know, you're going to do it. So it's, it's at at some point it requires attention. And um, yeah, the, I mean, I guess be... my sense of beating myself up is it's the sort of attention that I could do on my iPad in bed when I don't have the wherewithal to be able to be punching out right. a great pitch deck for this show that I want to do. You know, right? That has right. to happen now when I'm alert and clear headed. But maybe yeah, well, maybe this is just yeah. maybe this is just coming back to the same you know, the same problem of the pandemic self criticism and the uh, and the and the focusing too much on the coulda woulda shoulda um, that that has had the time to subsume all of our lives. Well, I mean, there, there are really just two levels at which you can deal with any of this stuff. I mean, the one level is mindfulness, which is is simply stopping the coulda woulda shoulda 
process, right? Like you, you just notice thoughts as thoughts and you let go of them. And, and in, insofar as you're able to do that, I mean, once you can actually practice mindfulness effectively, you really can just let go of the past and, and cease to uh, perseverate about the future and come, come back into the present moment. And that's, that's, genuinely freeing right it's like you're, you're like it doesn't matter how many hours or days or weeks you've lost to to idleness or distraction or doing the wrong thing it's like you have this moment right the, this this is the only place where you can make true contact with your life so do that right now and that's all the truth is that's always the right answer on some fundamental level and yet there's there's this other uh, process, which is to draw the appropriate lessons from the the dissatisfaction you might feel about the past and and the and the concern or anxiety you might feel about the future, right? So it's it, like if you if you recognize that you just wasted six hours, you know, just browsing who knows what and not getting any work done. And now the day is, is gone and you, and there's no time left to work. Um, yeah, you can become suddenly and radically mindful and let go of your ex, you know, the expectations you had for the day and your regret and your self-recrimination and, and your, your ambition and everything else, and just be happy looking out the window at the window uh, at the trees, um, that's true. But you can all—it's—it's it's also appropriate to just take stock of this this um, uh, this cycle that you that it, that is so familiar to you now. And I don't mean you personally. I mean this is, to, this is everyone. Virtually everyone knows this in themselves. Like that, you 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 tend to do these things again and again, and find them unsatisfying. Right. And and so much of living a better life is a matter of adjusting those patterns and, and mindfulness can help. I mean, mindfulness is, again, it's an incredibly useful tool and it's just it is the ground truth uh, with respect to what it means to be satisfied in, in any given moment. I mean, your real satisfaction is a matter of finding the present moment captivating enough so that you aren't brooding about the past or worrying about the future. And um, and mindfulness is the discovery that you can do that deliberately regardless of what's happening. I mean, not, nothing especially good has to be happening in the present for you to do that. You know, you can just pay sufficient attention to it and, and the, the, the present moment opens up um, and becomes, you know, genuinely... Um, a genuine foundation for well-being, and and it doesn't matter if you're looking at trees or staring at a blank wall or whether you're on the great, you know, you know, snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef or not. Uh, you can you can actually just kind of fall into the well of being and and uh, find it satisfying, and that's what you know meditation practice you know allows you to do deliberately. But um, again, it's I, I'm not especially um, critical of even the, the 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 fairly superficial takes on on self-improvement one one gets from silicon valley because the, 
a lot of that stuff works. You know, it it works in the same way that you know the the personal trainer on the infomercial, you know, has has something genuine to say about how to get your body into shape. <laughs> Depending on what they're shilling that particular day. Right. If it's some, yeah. if it's one of those platforms that you stand on that wiggles your abs no. uh, and supposedly gives you an eight pack, then maybe not. I, 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 I am skeptical point. of that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about consciousness then, because this ability to focus, to refocus your consciousness on the, on the now, uh, to appreciate that as you say, the only sort of interface between us and reality is what's happening right now, not the stories that we tell ourselves about the things that we should have done in the past or the think, the fears that we might have about the future. There are certain contexts in which that is very available. You just mentioned snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef. One of the great things about nature and one of the reasons I like to scuba dive, for example, and some people say this about skiing, which I'm not good enough at to to understand this yet, but or surfing, uh, is that it slams you right into into that spot. It's very hard to be scuba diving through a coral reef and to, well, it is possible yeah. to, and to be worrying about, you know, what you should have done yesterday or how much milk you need to buy tomorrow. But it's very easy to, to just glide right into living in the moment. And our days and our lives at the moment are almost set up by an evil demon to be the opposite of that. You've mentioned social media, which is a super easy way to take you out of the to, to remove from you the obligation of finding something interesting in while you're waiting in line at the supermarket. I know you can't do that in America anymore, but here in Australia, you'd still be waiting in line at the supermarket or doing something boring, waiting for your computer to start up. You can pull out your phone, have a quick look at what people are saying on Facebook, and then put it away without the obligation of filling those eight seconds with something that your that your mind with 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 your mind actually understanding where it is in time and space. Um. Do you want to just reflect on what that might be doing to our heads and what the let's getting back to life hacks are to get us out of it? Mindfulness being the obvious one, but what does that actually mm. look like? On one level, technology is concealing the problem, and on another level, it's it's exacerbating it. Right, so it's 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 exacerbating it obviously in the um, the degree to which it's amplifying conflict. And and showing us the, the the worst in people and and in ourselves, right? So we're if you get on Twitter, you know half the people seem insane, right? I mean, there's obviously a lot of good stuff on Twitter, and that's why we we keep coming back to it. But so you know, in my experience, I'm I'm, I'm following a lot of smart people uh, who are recommending articles and other things, and so I'm using using smart people to curate my news diet. To some degree, and and that seems like a, a totally appropriate use of Twitter, and just it adds value to my life. I mean, it's it's, just, it's why I haven't closed down my account. But and then and also I can push out my own content, my own podcasts, and other things that, that I release, and it's, so it's it's a marketing channel. Um, and so that seems you know very much to the good. But then when I see what's coming back at me on Twitter much of the time, you know, I, I put out a podcast and then I see s people react to it. Um, and this is something I, I see much less of now because I, I spend almost no time looking at, at my at mentions. But uh, when I do look, what I see is um, very often the worst in people. And it's, um, that's a, you know, that's a negative, it's an intrinsically negative experience once, you know, someone is, is, uh, having this awful reaction to you personally, or at least seems to be, um, and especially when that person is not just a uh, a Russian 
bot or a uh, an anonymous Twitter egg, but you know someone who actually has a blue check mark and is a, a real person, or, you know, is somebody who's who, you know, you in some other context you would you would expect more from, uh, and yet they they seem to have become deranged in this context, and um, so where I think many of us in in various ways are experiencing the um, the toxification of our our lives online uh, th- with these tools and and as we know it doesn't stay online it, it bleeds into the rest of life and it it becomes you know you know psychologically difficult for people to to navigate this I mean we're just not well set up for the the experience of having thousands upon thousands of people tell us we're you know we're the scum of the earth um, and uh, so there's that. Uh, the other effect here is that it, access to this kind of technology is making it possible essentially to never be bored again, right? Like you never have to confront your just what it's like to be in your own presence with nothing to do, with nothing calling your attention, and to discover whether or not you're comfortable just you know in your own company you know, just looking at the trees, right? I mean, I, like yeah, you, and I think this is actually the graver of the two issues because you and I live in the space where the former concern that you've just raised is the more pressing one because we say things that get us that get people to take pot shots at us, and so it's often the case that people will take pot shots at us. But for the average person who doesn't have a, a large platform, I think the experience of social media is more insidious in in it being a tool of distraction than a tool mm-hmm. of hostility. Yeah, well, maybe not personal hostility, but what what I think the average person does see on social media is just the the cacophony, uh, which attests to the fact that people just can, can seemingly cannot communicate with one another. And when you just look at the the, the conversation mm. around Trump or around, you know, racism in the United States, or it's just like there's a, such a derangement of of communication where it's just it's become so vicious and unreasoning mm. uh, and in, in, in ways that are completely just unnecessary. So there's, there's, there's just a kind of a despair around... Uh, talking about anything of substance that you get from seeing the 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 just the the wasteland of of the failed attempts on on Twitter in particular. I mean, I, I'm not really on. I, I I have a Facebook account and an Instagram account, but I don't interact with them at all. And we just sort of you know push out podcasts yeah. and stuff there. So I don't know what it's like there, but I can I can imagine it's. It's also bad. I mean, but, I think Instagram uh, is probably is probably the best of of the three. But even just on comment boards, I mean, even just on new, I'm thinking of, you know, the controversy over the lockdown in Victoria at the moment, or you know, face masks. You know, the 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 Home Depot Australia's version of Home Depot Bunnings has has been in the news because someone walked in there with a a phone videotaping her right to not wear a face mask, which is now mandatory right. inside. You know, on in this private. Well, it's mandatory now everywhere in Victoria, in, in Melbourne, but it was it was initially mandatory in this private company, and she went viral for asserting her rights under the 1948 Human Rights Convention in the United United Nations. You know, going back to the Magna Carta and stuff about mm-hmm. why they can't force her to wear a, a face mask, and the comments are as unedifying as you would expect them to be about 
such an issue. It seems like the it seems like social media and the internet in general as a means of communication are tailor made to extremify and dumbify our points somehow. They're just mm-hmm. not conducive to having to having nuance so but anyway let's let's park that and let's move on to to problem two of not uh, of them enable giving us an out to ever having having to live with ourselves yeah which on one level uh feels good right i mean it it feels it's, it's amazing to know that there's a functionally infinite amount of information you want and and it's all available right now right so like it's you know every book you would ever want to read is you know potentially in your phone if you decide to put it there uh the entire internet is in your phone yeah we're you know we're, we're almost at the moment where every film ever made is is available to you right now i mean if you can remember what it was like to you know, go to a video store and wander the aisles and looking for something, and like, and not after an hour, not find anything you wanted to watch. I mean, I used to work at one. I used to work at a video store when I was in my teens, and I look back on the, I, I drive past the same spot now, and you know, it's turned into some boutique. And I think that you know, if you'd shown me, if you'd told me back then that in fifteen years' time there'd be no such thing as no one would be renting anything, no DVDs. Just yesterday, I was watching Curb Your Enthusiasm from season four. And Larry and Jeff Garland get a, they order a Girls Gone Wild uh, uh-huh. video from online. Now, season four of Curb Your Enthusiasm, that can't be more than 15 years old. They get a mm-hmm. VHS. They put it into a right. VHS machine. It was like I was right. watching something from the 1950s. It's like, who, I, they don't even make VHS machines. You can't even buy one if you wanted to. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel the same way about uh, DVDs and and Blu-ray discs. I mean, I like the last time I interacted with a disc. I, I don't I don't remember when that happened. I mean, it's mm. just it's been it's been years. Yeah, that that does strike me as a fundamental change because it like it used to be that at a minimum, if you're sitting in the waiting room of your you know dentist's office, uh, confronted by just the the stack of terrible magazines, um, for that for those fifteen minutes. Uh, you just had to sit there and there, there was something you could realize about yourself in that hiatus between, you know, otherwise distracting things where you could, you could take stock of the fact that, you know, your, your mind was restless or not. Right. Um, you know, if you if you know how to meditate, well, you could, you could naturally just kind of fall into to meditation there and that would be, that's fine. But if you don't, you you would find a kind of restlessness of attention and boredom and um, and on the other side of that, th- th- there's some wisdom to be found. I mean, th- like if you become interested in your your inability to just be content with nothing going on, you, you could then be led to to want to look into the matter and and you know learn a practice like meditation or. You know, take psychedelics, or I mean, just there, there could be it could be a goad to living a more examined life. But now, it's almost like the you know the, the TV is always on in the room you're in, and it's got a thousand channels. And uh, unlike it used to be in the past, there's pretty good stuff on on most of them 
most of the time. I mean, like you really like it's not a quality problem for the most part. I mean, yes, it's it's possible to bounce around Netflix for a little bit and and not know whether there's anything worth watching. But uh, if you just, I mean, I mean, for me, reading is the is the clearest case. It's like it is just obvious to me that there is more that I want to read than I would be able to read in a thousand years. Mm. Right? It's just like it's just. I will never read all the things I want to read. Uh, so, um, it's, uh, and it's all available. It's not like you have to even go to the bookstore anymore, mm. right? It's like, it's all instantly available. If you tell me of, of a book I, I really must read right now, I can have it on my Kindle in, in 30 seconds. Um, that's, that's amazing. And, and, you know, for someone like me, it, it feels very good, but, um, it, it is also true that we are being changed by this environment and, and we are never i mean when you just look at how we use our, our smartphones i mean there is virtually never a point where we are without inputs mm. of, and it's um and i mean something, it de- it something's depends, being lost there it depends what the input it is as well i mean i wish the big problem was that we were all downloading too many books on kindle and reading those on our on our phones that would be a great problem to have in comparison yeah. to spending our time on social media or watching uh, short form videos short of meditating reading a novel is probably the best thing you can do with your with your consciousness so speak to people who are interested in meditation and have tried it a few times they've tried a few of these apps they understand the concept and they sort of say well i don't really get it i mean i kind of get it it makes you a bit more relaxed like but my thoughts keep intruding and uh, yeah, I, I guess it's a nice thing to do, just like sort of sitting with a cup of tea and looking at the clouds is a nice thing to do. Speak to the training that it gives you to be able to reassert your your control over your consciousness in the mo- in the moment. Well, I guess I would I would tend to want to flip it around. I mean, the concept that most people have is that meditation is something that you do. It's a practice that you add to your life. Or you add to the present moment. Uh, you know, very much like physical exercise and and that it has it's it's supposed to have various benefits uh, and it, it can certainly seem like that in the beginning and it, and it's you know it, it, in the beginning it's certainly appropriate to to draw the analogy between mental training and physical training right and and, and it's you know we have we have a, a now a very firm concept of the the usefulness of, of physical training and yet, you know, 100 years ago or 120 years ago, you know, only the the lunatic strongman at the circus with the the handlebar mustache was somebody who would lift weights, right? I mean, like like why on earth would you repeatedly pick up and 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 and, and put down heavy objects? I mean, what could be more pointless than that? But now we understand that you know all of this is good for you and. You're, you know, you are kind of an outlier if you have no interest in in physical training on any level, at least in in the developed society where you know most people don't have jobs that that are giving them the an analogous workout. Uh, but uh, so so it would be it's it's appropriate to think about a new norm around mental training, uh, which is also good for you and. Uh, something you could adopt intelligently, and it's while it may seem uh, a fringe thing now, uh, or comparatively fringe, in some years it won't seem fringe at all. And I, I think we're we're you know well on our way to that being true. Um, but the deeper framing here is that meditation really you know 
the, the kind of meditation I'm talking about, mindfulness, really isn't a thing that you're doing. It's something you're ceasing to do, right? So, so it's not you're not actually adding something to your experience in the present moment. You're, once you actually know what mindfulness is, it it's simply non-distraction, right? So the, the, the default state is to be distracted more or less every moment of the day by your thoughts, you're, you're, which is to say you're, you're identified with them. You're not aware that they're arising in consciousness and rather you merely feel identical to them. I mean, you suddenly, a thought comes up from behind you in some weird sense and becomes your mind. So if you're listening to me now, you know, you might think, well, what is he talking about, right? Like that, so that voice in your head, that feeling that, 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 that would really, really is just a, you know, kind of auditory cortex on some level firing, you know, with, with this language that you, you might've said out loud, but you didn't because your mouth didn't move, but you said it, you said it, you know, with the voice of your mind, um, that feels like you, right? It feels like your subjectivity has been trimmed down to that, that, that sentence, that, you know, that covert utterance, right? And so it is with, it can be with, with visual thoughts, right? With the kind of episodic memories that, that arise in your mind where you, you know, you, you're having a, um, uh, you're kind of watching an inner movie right, in some ways. Uh, we're, we're continually, we, we spend our time just continually embedded in this, in this, uh, it's almost like a dream-like experience, right? It, it has the kind of it, it, it's 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 more diaphanous. I mean, we're available to the data from the the external world when when we're thinking and and daydreaming, but we're we're not entirely available. I mean, so everything we're experiencing in in our you know, normal waking life, our interactions with other people, you know, our our navigating you know public space in the world, uh, it's all happening through this this sort of scrim of of chatter you know and 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 uh rehearsal and you know memories about the the recent past and and expectations about the the near future and it's um it's just a it's just a tissue of concepts and and self-talk that that goes uninspected until you are asked to to practice a technique like mindfulness. But once you actually are able to be mindful, you kind of fall on the other side of this process and it's and then you recognize the mindfulness is not the practice. the the distraction is the practice. and it's and it's it's enormously well practiced by everyone since the moment they can talk. Uh, I mean, there's nothing you have practiced more in your life than having a conversation with yourself mm. that and so, and and it and it is when you look at the the substance of your psychological suffering, it is entirely mediated by this conversation, uh, and and that's that's what I mean. The, the real selling point for meditation is that it, it it's a method by which you would unhook from this machinery of of um, you know masochism in the end, right? Where you're 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 punishing yourself in ways that you you don't even understand. Uh, and 
being made continuously uncomfortable by you know, your self-judgment and your even your judgment of others, your envy, your your self-doubt, your like just what, what, so many of our uh, moods are unpleasant, and they're they're all riding on top of this this process of thinking that goes uninspected and. Um, so meditation gives you, again, in, in the in the beginning, the training can seem, you know, fairly mechanical and and prescriptive, and you're doing something, right? So in the beginning, you're asked to focus on the breath, you know, very commonly, right? And so that seems like something, you know, you weren't naturally focusing on the breath, and now you're asked to do that, and you find it's hard, right? It's hard to concentrate. You're you're you know, you pay attention to one breath, and then all of a sudden you're Five minutes later, you wake up and you realize you you completely forgot you were supposed to be meditating and you were just thinking about the vacation you've been planning. Um, and so, you the, the 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 technique there is to then just come back to the breath. Uh, but you know, once you you get the practice up and running to any degree, it it becomes a much less structured use of attention and really. In the end, you're just noticing whatever's appearing in consciousness, you know, thoughts included. It's not even a matter of blocking thoughts, much less changing them. It's it's a it's a matter of just noticing whatever you notice moment to moment and um, not resisting anything. And mm. it's um and it and in that space, you can recognize that consciousness has some intrinsic qualities that are the very things you are seeking when you're busy seeking to be to become happier than you are right i mean it, it is free of of any problem you would otherwise think about right it's free, it's it's free, on some basic level it's free of psychological suffering uh, and it's uh, you know it's just it's it's not con- and it's free of of this sense that most people have most of the time of being a self in the middle of experience, right? I mean, most people don't feel merely identical to their experience in the present moment. They feel like they're a self having the experience. They mm. feel like they're they're appropriating it from some position in their heads. You know, like there's a there's a subject in the head that's kind of riding around in the body like it's a, a kind of vehicle. You know, people don't tend to feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they have bodies. And, the, and it's on the basis of this feeling that people could imagine that, you know, at death, they might, you know, float off the brain and go elsewhere. All right. So the, the, the I think most people are quite naturally dualists in, intuitively. Um, this, is, this is something that, that my friend Paul Bloom, the psychologist, has said that, you know, he thinks people are common sense dualists. Mm. And, and it's, it is the... It really it, it makes the, the notion of a soul pretty natural psychologically. Yeah, uh, I remember my but, grandmother in her later years when I I would I spoke to her about death at one point. She lived until the eve of her hundredth birthday, and uh, she said, "Well, it's just your your body's just like a car, isn't it? I'm just driving around in my car. When the car goes, right. I'll I'll go somewhere else, I suppose, and who knows where that will be? That'll be all part of the adventure." Uh, that's, I think, what, the, yeah, a sensibility that a lot of people share that you're pointing to. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's that starting point of feeling like a subject, you know, or a a center, a a mind that has a, a kind of center of gravity, uh, you know, from which you. I mean, and this is something that you know, 
you feel when you when you first start meditating as well. So you, like you you're asked to pay attention to the breath. Most people start that project feeling like okay, all right, I'm going to aim my attention at the breath. You know whether it's you know at the tip of the nose or at the you know the rising and falling of their, of their chest or abdomen. They they feel like they're they feel like they're up in their heads now aiming attention down at you know one of these parts of their body um, and then trying to get closer to those sensations and that that project can be more or less uh, successful in any moment uh, but then gets frustrated by the the continual arising of thought or they get distracted by something else sounds or other sensations in their body they have a pain in the knee and they notice that and now they're trying to get back to the breath and but they're they're, they're aiming the spotlight of attention from this place in the head, or they, they they seem to be doing that. And the thing you discover ultimately is that that's a false point of view, right? There is no place in the head from which you're aiming attention. Um, and this is, I mean, I'm speaking experientially. I'm not saying that the brain has nothing to do with it. I'm saying that, you know, for, as a matter of experience, there really is just consciousness and its contents. And consciousness is this this wide open condition in which everything you can possibly notice, you know, sights, sounds, sensations, thoughts, moods, anything, it, that is the that's the only place it can be noticed. And it's and when you recognize that that you're not, it's not something you can you're paying attention to from the outside. It is the very substance of your noticing anything in any direction. Uh, you can sort of you can fall into this this condition and and, and recognize your identity with it, and it's it, it no longer feels like I. It no longer feels like a a subject in the head. I mean, because what you're calling your head is is another appearance in this prior condition, and so it does it does kind of cash out the some of the mystical language one hears in you know from the various traditional religions. Uh, and to, to one degree or another, and it's is it's of a piece with the kinds of experiences many of us have had on psychedelics, but it's um, it, you know achieving it this way in meditation is is far more straightforward, and it's um, it doesn't it, it need not actually be framed by any traditional religious or superstitious or otherworldly concepts right it's it's just a very you know you can think of you can think about it in in entirely 21st century neurophysiological terms uh, and the experience is no less freeing uh, when you have it and so that's that's sort of the the, the line I'm walking in in waking up the the meditation app where, mm. I, where I talk about these things. Um, let's just let's just yeah. let's just stay there on the neurophysiology then and on the physics because I think that's a really good articulation that you've just made of the first person experience of consciousness. But let's you said there's nothing necessarily supernatural or otherworldly about it. There's nothing necessarily religiously doctrinaire about it, or there's nothing in it that could give us confidence that the claims of ancient books are true. But I'd push back on there not being something otherworldly about it at least metaphorically you you said like when you get present to your own consciousness you realize that it is free it is free of of all of the concerns that you're trying to avoid in the first place mm. what is the it 
there. Well, it, it, it's consciousness itself. What is right? that? And Let's it, talk about the physics of it. How? What is your hunch about how it comes to pass that there is a latent soup that we're bobbing in that has self-awareness and that contains all the properties of self-awareness and feeling and thought and that we, constructed as we are of atoms, are um, tuned into it or generating it. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm basically agnostic with respect to the, the metaphysics of this. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, I can objectively say that we don't yet know how consciousness arises in the physical universe, right? We, so we, we don't know at what level it emerges or, you know, what, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions to, to produce it. Um, and you know, if, if you want to push the, the conversation far enough into the, the philosophical fringe, we, we have to admit that we we aren't a hundred percent sure that it does in fact emerge, which is to say that consciousness could go all the way down into the the very you know the, the the smallest constituents of matter, or it could be some you know its own principle that's you know however it's integrated with matter, or whatever matter is in light of it, you know or maybe the, these categories of mind and matter are are at bottom. Um, misleading us, and maybe there's just a, a a a more neutral monism that explains you know what's happening here. Um, I don't think much turns. I mean, certainly experientially, it's irrelevant, right? So you know, it could be that consciousness emerges at a certain level of you know information processing in you know any physical system that that processes information and you know our brains being one um, and it's you know therefore there are you know necessary and sufficient conditions for a human brain to be conscious and when you when you lose any of those it it the, the, the lights go out and you know there, there's a fair amount of evidence suggesting that's true in our case although there there are reasons to be skeptical of of you know over interpreting any of that evidence, but you know the the, the evidence, f- you know from you know general anesthesia, you know many people find fairly compelling. I mean the fact that you know if you if you need a um, a, a major surgery done, you, know, you can go into a hospital and someone is going to in a few short minutes successfully turn the lights out for you, such that your experience is one of having had experience itself perfectly interrupted right you know you were there you know worried a moment ago and then the next you know the next instant of time you are rebooted and you know though you were out for six hours um you don't know any of you don't know anything about that you're back and you're just very happy to have missed that experience entirely um that compels many people to believe that well okay consciousness is obviously something the brain is doing you know we we put the right um, anesthetic into the brain and it stops doing it. And, and so therefore, you know, when you die, the brain stops doing everything. So your consciousness is, is completely nullified permanently in your case. Uh, that's, you know, you're not going to embarrass yourself in scientific circles, believing that about consciousness. Uh, and within that frame, we, we still don't know how it arises, though there are some theories. Uh, and, 
we're just waiting to figure that out. And it's it remains an open question whether any computers we build will become conscious because it, you know if consciousness is born of information processing in in human brains, well then there doesn't seem to be a deep reason why the a brain would need to be biological. And so so there's a a fairly strong assumption of of substrate independence. I think that many people have so. Substrate independence, meaning that it shouldn't really matter whether or not the computer is made of meat in your head or is made of right. silicon in a computer. If they're equally sophisticated, they should have a similar outlook on the world and a, a similar ability to feel thoughts as occurring. But I mean, yeah. the just on the uh, on the anesthetic argument. I mean, the anesthetic is not shutting down the information processing in your brain. Your brain is doing all kinds of stuff still, and it's keeping your body. Uh, alive, and we don't really understand what the anesthetic is doing. It's obviously shutting off that bit that can notice and remember and feel. But if you were under an MRI machine, your brain would still be doing all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, it's it's doing much less, though. It's shutting the brain down significantly, and it's shutting down those areas that, that appear to mediate you know, we can say consciousness with, with an asterisk, right? It, it's definitely making us most of the time unable to remember that anything happened, right? But the question of whether or not it was like something to be us on the table and we've just forgotten what it was like, that remains somewhat open. And now, I mean, you know, that's a horrifying possibility yeah. that, that people are actually experiencing the pain of surgeries and then just having their, their minds wiped off it. And it comes, yeah. down, comes and, back to the question and, of and what would it even true. mean to say that you experienced that thing if you had no recollection of it and you're just reborn as a person before it happened? Yeah, and, and that's, we should say that that's actually possible. I mean, we, we actually know how to engineer that because we've, we've had enough mishaps in, in over... Uh, the last 150 years in anesthesiology that that we know what it's like to paralyze someone and do surgery on them all the while they really are being consciously tortured but can give no indication of it because they're entirely paralyzed. Although wouldn't there be uh, physiological markers of having undergone extreme suffering uh, like cortisol levels or something like that that you would notice? Yeah. Well, yeah, one, yeah, well, it was certainly, but, but at the time, you know, people just thought they were anesthetized and then they would, but then they would get off the table and, um, I mean, what happened, I, I think horrific, I'm, my recollection of the history here is a little muddy, but I believe we, for some period of time did procedures on very young children, unaware that we were simply paralyzing them with no analgesic or an anesthetic effect, um, and it wasn't until those procedures were tried on on adults that we realized, okay, wait a minute, that's just torture. Wow, that's horrendous. Um, so, but, but what I mean is, anesthetic on a widespread level can't be that. I mean, we can't be mistaken about that because presumably people who'd undergone operations would have all kinds of stress responses later on, even if they couldn't remember having undergone the trauma. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be too quick to decide that because it's, you know, we have to recognize that a true failure of memory is, you know, identical in terms of your your experience to the thing not having happened, right? So it's just, just many of us have dreams every night uh, about which we have no recollection, 
right? Like, but if know, a person you, went to sleep and every night they endured eight hours of the greatest agony imaginable, uh, even if they didn't remember it, wouldn't they have certain physiological dysfunctions? Well, that, in other words, if you, be, if you underwent, if you underwent is, an eight-hour operation where people but, are cutting into your body, uh, wouldn't, you be, wouldn't you be different? Wouldn't you be scarred in some way? Well, yeah, but it, it depends how widespread that, that torture is. I mean, it could be, in, in fact, true that that's the normal experience. If you, if you move it from surgery to dreams, it could just be true that most of us, most nights, have harrowing encounters with our own neurotic, you know, inner inner wilderness, uh, and don't remember it much at all. I mean, I, I go for a very long time without remembering a dream, right? I mean, I, I, I often wake up without any sense of having dreamt, and I, I know based on what we think we, you know, generalizes from the literature that most of us dream every night for you know, some significant period of time, um, whether we remember anything or not, right? So presumably I'm having all kinds of adventures, you know, pleasant and otherwise every night when I'm dreaming, when I'm, when I'm asleep, but my, my default experiences of not dreaming. Right. And, um, yeah, but all I'm saying is that if there was some cohort of the population for who had horrendous nightmares of physiological torture and some cohort that didn't, then regardless of whether or not they remember anything, wouldn't there be a physiological difference among the former group of people? Well, there might be, but but I, I'm just, I'm saying that most of us, I mean, most dreams are fairly, many, many dreams are fairly unpleasant or, or at least weird enough to, to be unpleasant if you if you uh, remember them clearly. Uh, yeah, I mean, but they, the they analogy be, here is to, is to being uh, paralyzed on a gurney while people cut into right. you. So if the – I'm just saying the, the cohort of the population who have undergone repeated uh, serious surgeries, if they were – if every time they went under the knife, they were actually in a nightmare hellscape where people were cutting into them and then they just forgot it, then you would assume that you'd be able to grab a thousand of those people and a thousand people who'd never had surgery and see whether or not the cortisol levels were unusually high in people who had, who had repeated surgeries. Yeah, yeah, but in the dream case, if if it's happening to virtually everyone, there's just no there's no sure. control group. Yes. Right? I mean, we yes. just have nothing. This just could be what norm the normal mind is like. It's just to have eight hours, you know, or or four hours a night of of um, being uh, beaten to a pulp by weird encounters with <laughs> with uh, people who don't exist, um, and that just could be why we're you know most people are so neurotic m most of the time. Uh, but with with surgery, yeah, I mean, there are things we've learned about surgery. And again, I, I'm not a I'm not an anesthesiologist, and I I don't know so much of the history here. But I know that you know there have been epiphanies that have been had, where, for instance, if you don't add local anesthetic to a general anesthetic in certain procedures, you know, the the outcomes are are not as good. Right, because like like even the spinal cord can learn a pain response, even when even under gen general anesthesia, you can get, mm. you know, greater greater um, lasting pain if you don't actually block it at the level of the spinal cord as well. Um, but uh, I mean, again, that's not my area. But yeah, the whole, it's it's a it's just it's interesting to consider uh, what it would mean to be to have proof that consciousness subsides under any specific set of conditions and how to untangle that from a, a mere failure of memory.
right? And mm. that's hard because all we ever really have is self-report. Like if you could hook me up to a machine which uh, interrupts my consciousness on demand, uh, how would we distinguish my experience using that machine from it interrupting my ability to remember what it was like to be me for any period of time. Mm. Uh, so it's like mo most people, for instance, imagine that they are unconscious during deep sleep, right? That there's nothing that it's like to be you while you're in, in Delta sleep. Um, I think that's pretty unlikely to be true. In fact, mm. you know, I've had a few experiences of like, you know, meditating in a dream and having the dream disappear and what I then experience, you know, quite consciously is just like an, you know, an ocean of bliss. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would bet that it's, it, you know, it seems more likely to me that deep sleep is a conscious experience of bliss or something, you know, very nice that we just don't remember when we get up and we have a dim or like sort of we have a memory sort of on the penumbra, the penumbra of it, which is, man, that was nice. Uh, but, uh, it's such a shame if that's the case. Yeah. I mean, we might be swapping bodies. Who knows? You might, you might, you know, we might go into deep sleeps and then have whole other experiences, uh, as other people yeah. in other, in other parallel universes and then pop back into our bodies, whether that's real or not. Yeah. It wouldn't it be given, funny. Given if, the time zone differences, it might be possible. It's, right, paying exactly. taxes in yeah. Australia. That's right. It'd be pretty funny if, uh, if anesthetic, which we don't know how it works, all it actually did was uh, kind of teleport you like a bad 1980s Tom Hanks movie into the body of another human being. Uh, and then you, right. you, you popped back in eight hours later when you woke another, up. Another no human recollection. being. It was just vilifying you on Twitter <laughs> from their right. point of view. Exactly. In another time zone. Yeah, you and Ezra Klein are the same person, just as mm -hmm. one, is, one is sleeping and one is awake. Right, um, right. Let's talk about, okay, so consciousness, all right, let's park the question. We don't need to go down the rabbit hole of whether computers are going to be uh, conscious, although we, we can always end up there if, if we must. Um, you mentioned psychedelics. There, I've noticed that having kids, it's funny, Mike Bubiglia has got a new book out about parenthood and um, I'm just reading it now and he talks about how becoming a parent sort of opens up this aperture that gives you a perspective on things that people who don't haven't had the experience of having kids uh, don't see. And, and that's a pretentious way of putting it, but it's also sort of true because I find myself saying all of the stupid cliched things that parents say and feeling all of the levels of commitment and mm. love towards my kids that are highly irrational. I mean, I saw someone online saying, if you were, if you're middle-aged and you could either have the rest of your life free, but have your five-year-old child imprisoned for the rest of her life, would you do it? And this person was saying only a person who is whose brain is foggy with the hormones of stupid parenthood would say that that they should lock themselves that, sorry that that um, yeah that they should lock themselves up in order to keep their five-year-old child free because your five-year-old child doesn't have any aspirations hasn't isn't properly formed yet doesn't understand what he or she even wants yet I mean just have another kid if you want to have another kid then just throw that one away and then you can be free and that one can live in jail and I was I was struck by how completely deranged that sounded mm -hmm. to me, not just on an intellectual moral level, but on a personal level. Like, I would absolutely so easily give my life for either of my, my kids, which I understand is the sort of right. slightly silly 
like I, I can see that I'm in. I can see that I am a mammal doing mammalian things and ex- having mammalian experiences towards my mm-hmm. offspring. And I say that only as a similar way to. I remember Stephen Fryer talking about taking acid for the first time and finally understanding the true yellowness of yellow and perceiving the true barkness of tree bark for the first time. And all of this reminds me of your talking about just a few moments ago the the attention to the present, the the actual interface between our consciousness, our experience of bobbing around in this soup of self-awareness and whatever is actually directly right in front of us in the here and now. Drugs are one way of exerting that focus. You've mentioned meditation. What do you suspect the reality that we're interfacing is? I don't think it really matters what reality is with I mean so so whatever reality is I mean whether we're in touch with the base layer of reality in any sense you know, you know scientifically with our instruments and theories or whether we're totally confused about it whether we're just you know in the matrix on some level or brains and vats um, it, consciousness is the ground truth of our lived experience right that you know the, the fact that the lights are on for you as you in this moment and the fact that that admits of certain possibilities of happiness and suffering that's undeniable right like that, that's that's just again it, it doesn't you don't have to answer the further question of well how does this arise in the first place or is you know d- does this exist elsewhere in the universe or you know w- would my computer be conscious if we if we organized it in a way that seemed functionally isomorphic with with my brain um you know, we, like all of that, all, I mean, those are granted, those are the, some of the most fascinating questions that we could ask, and I, I want answers to them. But in terms of what is possible now as a matter of experience, or what what is what happens to your experience the more closely you pay attention to it from, you know, your own side, from the first person side, um, what is there to be discovered and what isn't there to be discovered or what, you know, what isn't there, you know, whose absence can be confirmed, you know, um, i.e. the the self. Uh, that's all, none of that changes uh, in the in the absence or presence of a, a theory about you know, the, the, the integration of consciousness with the rest of the, the universe. Um, so I, I really I, I do see those as two distinct projects. I mean, you know, you could go you, you can go back a thousand years or two thousand years, uh, and the project of recognizing the nature of consciousness from the first person side is it was identical. It was the exact same project. And you know, when you you know, read the 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 teachings of the Buddha or any other you know contemplative from from millennia ago. Uh, you see that it's just you know though they did not have a scientific worldview they did not have any of the inf- you know a fraction of the information we have about what's actually going on you know in our bodies and brains and and you know elsewhere in the universe they still have the same problem with their thoughts and this the sta- the same uh, possibility of recognizing this this wider context in which thoughts and everything else is appearing, you know, for, again, from the first person side. So I, I just, I do view them as separable and we really can't afford to, personally, none of us can afford to wait around, even if, even if there was some important 
or promising connection between the the understanding the universe part and the experiencing the present moment clearly part um, we we can't afford to wait around to to be told by the men and women in white lab coats, uh, you know, what's true when, you know, we only have some thousands of days at best left to to run this, exper- this experiment of Yeah, I don't mean to, I don't mean to con- conflate them. I mean, yeah, you're yeah. right. We can, we can take action on the first-person experience of what consciousness is, and we can interface with whatever – we can interface with reality. But now I'm sort of pivoting to that second-tier question of what is that, mm. that reality that we're interfacing with in the first place. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, I think it's it's, a, it's it's. Let me just frame this for some listeners. There's mm-hmm. a simple first year philosophy thought experiment about the the evil demon, which is basically the Matrix, right? The Matrix. The Wachowski brothers did that. Yeah. They put that well in the Matrix. Uh, you know, we don't know whether all of the things that we're, all of the inputs that we're actually seeing are are fi- fictitious in some way. We could be mistaken about them. How would we know? This is a Descartes sort of. Uh, uh, idea. All we really know is that I think is that we're conscious, and that's a point that you've made. And I would also add to the to the matrix uh, um, analogy that, of course, we're living in a matrix. Even if everything that we see is as reality is, we're only perceiving it using the tools of our own senses. And all of that, as you've alluded to earlier, is taking place in our brain or in our mind, wherever you think that's happening. We're not an impartial, objective observer of everything. All of the light photons that come into our eyes have to get interpreted and have to get turned into images of the world, and we're intentionally excluding all kinds of things below the level of awareness that we could that could be inputs. So, of course, we're yeah. a big roiling box that is doing all kinds of calculations and, and superimposing onto our consciousness a an impression of the world around, around us. My question now is, like... How how trusting can we be of that thing, <laughs> and what what are we all doing here anyway? Now I'm asking you to play pastor. Yeah, well, I think there's good reason to be skeptical that we're in a position to ever have a a final understanding of anything. I, I think it's you know I, I'm philosophically and, and scientifically I'm a, a realist, which means that you know it's not all made up. It's not something. It's not merely a a social construct. It's not the truth of a a proposition isn't just a matter of how that proposition functions in conversation with other apes, right? So I'm not a I'm not a philosophical pragmatist in in the sense that you know someone like Richard Rorty was. Um, I think there's I think there's a there there. I think there is a a reality at large that we can form beliefs about, and the beliefs can be more or less true um but i don't think we ever get a final truth in hand and i think we we you know in in, you know kind of a the sense in which you know karl popper suggested i do think we ultimately we just get a better sense of our errors and we make these iterative corrections attempting to, to form better and better explanations of what's going on but we don't have a, a final check of the tr- you know the the true explanation that we can cash and be be done with it um, and we never get to step outside of the way things seem to us to compare our our seemings with reality in itself right so there is a, it, it, there is just this inescapable fact that 
it's all mediated by consciousness. And in our case, it's, it's also mediated by the kinds of minds we have, right? I mean, consciousness is the fact that it's like something to, to have the kind of mind we have, but um, which is to say that all of our intelligence could be prosecuting itself in the dark, right? It could be, it could, you know, we could be, uh, you know, behaving in all kinds of complicated ways and, and, um, uh, do engaged in, in more or less intelligent, you know, civilization building behavior. And in, in that world, there'd be nothing that it's like to be us. The lights wouldn't be on. We would be, you know, kind of mindless robots or, or conscious, consciousness robots. You mean we can, ima- all we things. can imagine us being zombie robots right. uh, and still constructing it's, it's, a civilization. So why do we need to have the flicker of self-awareness and of, of a soul? I mean, people call this a soul, I suppose, uh, to use normal, right. normal parlance. Why do we need it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, and so I mean that's a, it's conceptually possible. I, it may in fact be impossible. I mean, it just may be true that a certain once you achieve a certain level of intelligence, consciousness just comes along for the ride, and you know, or or consciousness, you know, in some ways permeates everything and just gets elaborated by intelligence, and there's just no getting, you know, there's no getting away from consciousness. Does that feel satisfactory to you? Because it doesn't explain to me why a rat has consciousness. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think a rat is almost certainly conscious. I know, but, a, but it's know. not a, yeah, the, the, but the articulation of how consciousness arises in, from inanimate matter as simply once you get so sophisticated, then you become self-aware. A rat to me is less sophisticated than uh, a supercomputer. So I, I, don't right. know, I don't know how that gets us to self-awareness in the rat, but not in the computer. Well, well in some ways, it's more sophisticated than a supercomputer. I mean, it's, it's, it's less... It has less processing, but 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 organizationally, it's different from you know our, our current computers. But and, then you um, then you sort of risk begging the question philosophically and saying, well, the reason why the rat is uh, self-aware is because it's more complicated, and by complicated, I mean that it has the sort of system that would be self-aware. Well, so uh, let, let's separate self-awareness from consciousness because because it's. I think they're distinct, right? Yeah, because okay. I'm, I'm using self-aware yeah. to mean that there's some to mean what you're using consciousness to mean. Right. But, okay, let's okay. settle on consciousness as uh, yes, not aware. I don't mean self-aware in terms of being philosophically aware of its own existence over time and that it's going to die and that it's an individual. I just mean ex- having experiences that there's something yeah. something that it's like to be a rat. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I again, I, I don't know how or at what point you know, phylogenetically. Uh, the lights go on, right? I mean, it's like, I, and and no one, in fact, knows that. And there are people who will say, they they there's no one place where the lights go on. They go on, um, in in the subtlest increments in response to anything that could conceivably be thought of as information processing, right? So a single cell, on some level, has has some level of consciousness. Uh, and that that may be true. It's not. It's it's unsatisfying in in many ways. But I I think it's I think it is a um, this is one of those problems where it may in fact be impossible to have a satisfying a satisfying explanation. Because if you say that if it's true that consciousness goes all the way down, you know, so that you know the universe is con- it, you know the lights are on all the way down, even at the level of electrons. Uh, on some level, there's something that it's like to be an electron, and then it just gets, you know, elaborated based on 
the, the complexities of information processing beyond that, well, that's that's not an explanation. That for me, mm. that's just a, a statement of some kind of miracle. We don't. It doesn't t- tell us how consciousness came into being, right? It just it just takes it as a brute fact of. of it also the universe. feels a bit semantic or sort of circular, like you're defining the problem away. Because like if the if yeah. the level of consciousness of an atom is so small that it has no real experience, then okay, you can say that it has one trillionth the level of consciousness right. of a human being, and that that's how consciousness arises. But you're not actually explaining anything. Yeah, but you're also not explaining anything when you discover, and in fact, it may be true that well, let's say consciousness arises with a you know in a system of you know ten thousand information processing units organized like x right and so you just you, you stipulate that x is the the necessary and sufficient condition for organization and 10,000 units is the minimum and they have to be doing doing their x like thing within a you know a time window of you know whatever 500 milliseconds um, and that's those are the conditions let's say that's just the 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 right answer that also just sounds like a miracle. That doesn't explain mm. anything, right? And and the, the the issue we have with consciousness, and this is, as you know, <clears throat> excuse me, as you know, is is uh, referred to as the hard problem of consciousness. It's it seems impossible to come up with an explanation that actually seems explanatory. That that, that does that that cashes out our intuitions for what what constitutes an explanation in the scientific sense in, in most other areas, right? So like I can, you know, I can point to almost any other thing, thing that, that we understand scientifically, uh, where the, the explanation of a, of a, the emergence of a higher level phenomenon makes sense in terms of the lower level you know, micro events that that explain it, right? So if you're taking, I mean, famously, quantum mechanics is an exception here, um, and that's why no one really is satisfied with their understanding of quantum mechanics. I mean, it works as a predictive tool, but the picture of the universe one gets from you know, from uh, you know extrapolating from that tool is not intuitively satisfying to people, and so so this is just that's the the frontier of 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 physical understanding that just doesn't, you know, doesn't satisfy it. The people who claim to be satisfied with it have just decided to, to no longer care that they can't form a truly realistic picture of, of what's going on in the universe. But if you, if you take any other area in science, you take like, you know, molecular biology, you know, DNA, what the hell's DNA doing and, and what does it explain? Well, you know, you get a picture of, it's a very complicated uh, machine, but at, insofar as we understand it, our intuitions run through. I mean, they they run through from the 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 higher level phenomenon of you know you know proteins being expressed in the body, you know, and you know tissues being formed and you know processes being catalyzed and metabolism and you know cellular repair and and um, you know. Uh, everything we can just actually see when we when we uh, you know look in the mirror, um, and uh, these these micro level events that we can understand on the basis of of uh, the techniques of you know bi- biology and biochemistry and and again it's complicated, but at no point does it 
present a radical impasse where we're left thinking, okay, that looks like a miracle, mm. right? It's it's complicated, but it's not miraculous. Mm. And and that's um, what I meant by otherworldly. Like there is something otherworldly about about things that are created inside stars. You know, most of the universe is hydrogen. Stars produce these right. little impurities that get showered out throughout the cosmos. We are made of those impurities that construct themselves in such a way that we can then gaze back on the stars. Anyone who's <laughs> who's done, you know, who's read Carl Sagan in their teens and then dropped acid is, is struck by the incredible bizarreness of of that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, wrap wrap up that portion of the conversation, however however you will, because I, I don't have an answer. Well, it's useful to compare consciousness as something that's hard to explain to life, which also, you know, 100 years ago, or about you know less than that, maybe 85 years ago, was thought to be uh, similarly impossible to explain. I mean, there was there's a famous passage, uh, I believe... Uh, was it J.S. Haldane? It's, it's, it's one of the Haldanes who uh, who wrote that, you know, just I think around 1930, that there's just no way we're going to understand life. It's just impossible to, to, to understand the difference uh, between a living body and a dead one. And here I'm paraphrasing recklessly, but here the import of the passage was um, that we can't understand that the difference between a living body and a dead one uh, with all the attendant differences of you know the re- repair of wounds and you know the the capacity to to produce you know biological descent descendants you know uh, you know sexual reproduction all the rest there's no way we're going to understand this in mechanistic terms right this is just this it seems like it requires and uh, you know some kind of vital spirit you know an elan vital or i mean the the, the actual the thesis in in philosophy and science then was was called vitalism, right? It's like there's mm, something mm. extra required to explain the difference between a living body and a dead one. And when somebody dies, you know, there's this there's this transition from, you know, the person is there, and they have the you know the the light of consciousness is in their eyes, and then they're dead, and they're just, you know, in in very short order, they're just a a a bag of chemicals that is quickly cooling, you know, down mm. to room temperature, right? But there is and, still something miraculous about that, isn't there? Well, the, but but the, the the consciousness part is, once you take consciousness off the table and you're just talking about the difference between a living system and a dead one, um, now we know enough biology to not see anything mysterious about it. I mean, it, again, it's it's very complicated. And the, 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 the transition point, I mean, why, why death happens, you know, at one moment, or, or why the why the procession toward death becomes, you know, irreversible at one moment, and not at some other moment. I mean, that, you know, that boundary condition is, is probably still mysterious. I, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not a clinician. Uh, but the, uh, However, we define the moment of death, or, or admit that there is no one moment necessarily. The, the the difference between you know what a what it means to say that a system is alive isn't mysterious any longer, and it and the difference between saying that it's alive versus saying that it's conscious, and the and the the reason why this makes a difference with respect to the 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 power of our our explanations 
is because with with life, the definition is entirely a matter of what the system is doing from the outside, right? You you can you can make you can externally mm. evaluate this in principle, right? Whereas with consciousness, it's entirely a matter of what it's like on the inside for that from the point of view of that system mm. you know so so and you can never reduce consciousness to a third person criterion because it because either the, either the third person criterion matches up with the first person one or it doesn't and if it, if it doesn't well then it fails and if it does you're you're you know you're only talking about the third person side of it but the cash value is always still the first person yeah, side of it yeah. if it doesn't feel like something on the inside you're not talking about consciousness anymore whereas with life that's not the case life you can you can define the a living system versus a dead one with respect to what that system does observably from the outside you know, mm. does it reproduce does it does it you know respond to stimuli does it repair itself does it does it grow? Does it metabolize energy? I mean, like the list is 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 somewhat, you know, long, yeah. and 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 maybe there's there are there are boundary conditions where it's, you know, are viruses alive? Well, you know, that's debatable, right? You know, by by most definitions, they're not not entirely alive. Um, I but, mean, it, it, I take that point. It, it's still, yeah, yeah, it's still spooky. The, like the Elan Vital is still is still a compelling analogy in the sense that, like the the first dead body that I ever saw was my grandfather's, and we went round to his place after I got the call. After we got the call that he died, I was a kid, and uh, and he was the the medics hadn't arrived yet, so he was just lying on the floor with my grandmother next to him, and you know he looked dead. And over the course mm-hmm. of the subsequent 10 or 20 minutes while we waited you could see he was lying on his side and you could see the top half of his head go a a whitish blue and the bottom half of his head go reddish purple Mm -hmm. and I just sort of thought of the time that it was taking all of the inert blood in his body to just trickle through the the pipes essentially you know all of this physiology had just turned into a complicated mess of futile piping and the and the the liquid was just settling and the idea that a human being who had you know just hours before been capable of playing the guitar and talking and laughing that that was now that you can remove you can take consciousness off the table completely and that is still a totally extraordinary uh transformation yeah but if you take consciousness off the table the rest is is it's complicated, but it's entirely mechanical. You know, it's it's yeah, you know, it's biomechanical. Biomechanical. It's 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 physiological. It's electrical, and uh, in in some ways, but it's it's uh, it's just like there's nothing mysterious about breaking your arm and then not being able to move that arm. Right, like if, like like if if, if yeah. part of the structure is broken. Okay, so maybe it's, I'm it's maybe I'm, that it maybe no I'm smuggling works. consciousness in yeah. when I think about what a human bit. Be- because you're right that if it was a robot who was playing the guitar and laughing, and then the robot was inert, I'd find that totally mundane. Yeah, or so, if you smashed the robot with a hammer. Yeah, and then it no longer worked properly or worked at all. 
So is, what's, your, what's your point about making the analogy about how spooky we used to think uh, the difference between life and death was? Are you, are you saying that there is that that is not analogous to consciousness or that it is? Well, it's not. It's, it, again, the, the, the reason why we have a satisfying explanation of life is because life is life can be studied. Its constituents are defined from the outside and can be studied from the outside and have been, right? So we've, we've made enough progress in studying the clockwork that now we now there really is no mystery. It's still very complicated, but it's just like, here's the machine, here's how it works, here's how it can stop working, here's how, how we can fix it. You know, we're not mystified by a, a car engine, no matter how complicated you could make it, and we're not mystified by, in principle by the the mechanics of a human body you know it's like there's mm. not like there, there's no one there's no one in biology you know no real scientist in biology who no whatever problems are still outstanding i mean obviously the genome is is, is i mean we've, we've se- sequenced it but we don't understand exactly you know what what it's doing and how it's doing it but we understand the, the basic role that is playing in encoding the the information of inheritance and in in you know you know transcription in a living body and it's you know, like we, we we just we have a clear enough sense of of the of the these processes such right. that and, we and we're, we we're unlikely know, we, to ever get that from consciousness apart from, just, from the inside well yes i mean the, the the difference with consciousness is that, that it's always possible to wonder whether something a system is conscious and the only answer the only, the only real answer to that that is the answer is whether it is from its own side whether mm. there's something that it's like to be that system it's it, it's never a matter of whether it seems conscious to us mm. because we know we know there are systems that can seem conscious which are not conscious or at least we have good reason to believe that they're not conscious and we know there are systems that are conscious that do not seem conscious, right? We would have no idea they're conscious, but for the fact that, you know, that that person with locked-in syndrome, you mm. know, or the person who's paralyzed enough. Yeah, the person who's right. paralyzed from the from the dodgy anesthesia. And are you saying exactly. that an example of apparent consciousness that isn't consciousness might be an artificial intelligence program that right. you you say, are you conscious? And it says yes, and you go, well, I have no idea, no way of verifying that. That claim. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think we will. I think there's no question we will build machines that will seem conscious to us because we'll build them in that way. I mean, we'll build. They'll they'll pass the Turing test, and we'll build them. We'll, we'll want to interface with them in a way where we're, where we're you know re- relating to a a person like uh, intelligence. And you know, once we push that far enough, all of all of the intuitions. That we rely on to ascribe consciousness to others, you know, to other people and animals, um, we will; we, those intuitions will get tripped in the presence of these machines, and then I think we'll just lose sight of whether or not this is a an interesting question to ask. We'll, we'll just feel that we're in relationship to our, you know, robot butler, mm. and it'll it'll seem unethical to treat it as though it were unconscious, right? I mean, it's like if if you had it, you just have to imagine what a well, actually, this is I, I spoke about this and wrote about this with actually with Paul Bloom again. Um, Paul Bloom and I wrote a, a an op-ed in the New York Times 
um, when the first season of Westworld was over, I think, <laughs> yeah, or maybe it was the second season. But yeah, I mean, one of the lessons, you know, for for those of us who watched Westworld, and one of the lessons that kind of came through intuitively is that there's just no way this place could work. I mean, it would it would be a theme park for psychopaths, right? Like like you can't have a if you have a theme park where you're raping and killing uh, robots that are so human-like that they're indistinguishable from being human, well, then you're just a fucking psychopath. Yeah. Right? Like, like yeah. you're going to, you will feel like a psychopath both to yourself and to others. Like, you, I just, no matter how, you know, wh- whatever the explanation is, right? Like, if you go with your buddies to Westworld and you, you know, you just start uh, mistreating people, you know, r- robots who, who show all the signs of suffering your mistreatment, right? They're terrified of you. They feel, they seem to feel pain and you're getting off on, you know, raping and torturing them. Um, that ex- you, you will have had the, exp- the perfectly realistic experience of raping and torturing, you know, captives. Um, that will change you just as it would. I mean, the, the mm, grafting mm. onto that, your thoughts of, oh, they're just robots isn't going to work. No, right? I, I completely know. take that there are sociological and psychological consequences of not treating artificially intelligent systems that seem to be to be conscious as if they actually right. were conscious. But so, so, whether or so, not, so, I mean, your, yeah. your claim that that then sort of makes it a, a moot point could sort of go the other way. I could fully imagine that at the same time as we we feel the psychological and cultural need to to tr- to treat uh, artificial systems with respect, that it becomes all the more um, imperative to understand whether or not they are in fact conscious. And and like that gets us nowhere with respect to the question of why the rat is conscious, mm. but these systems aren't if they're not. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely not a moot point when you flip it around, because I think it's also possible to build systems that don't seem conscious at all. We would never think to attribute consciousness to them. And yet there is something that it's like to be that system and it's suffering. Right. Mm. So we like, you know, we could populate uh, hell essentially without knowing it because we just built some, you know, intelligent simulation in the context of a computer, in a computer where you know we we didn't build any interface that made it seem conscious to us, and so we didn't care about it, and yet we we built you know built a you know, chamber of horrors for some conscious agent. You mean and that you also, mean that conscious agent would be an a, an incredibly sophisticated app that we've developed that is so sophisticated that it actually feels like there's something that it's like to be it. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a Black Mirror episode along these lines. Like there was like <laughs> I'm was sure like there are several dating, <laughs> by yeah. the sounds of it. Yeah, no, I think it was a I think the, it was a clever episode. It was it was a um it was like a, it was a dating app whose algorithm, you know, in picking, you know, in finding the right dates for, you know, a person out in the real world mm. basically put, you know, these these intelligent 
simulations of the person through you know m- you know uh, millions of life years of yeah of horrible that's one of my favorite episodes you've just ruined yeah. you've just spoiled it for anyone who hasn't seen it because <laughs> that's yeah. the tag at the end at the end of the Sorry. whole thing you think the people are yeah. you think the two people right. are real and they they overcome all these incredible obstacles in order to uh, to escape this society that's trying to prevent them from being together and they finally make it together and when they do make right. it they realize that they are sim- they are uh, avatars in a simulation which has been rolling the dice on all these people and uh, and because they overcame all of those odds it was proof to the system that they should be matched and then we we cut back to the real world where those two people are in a bar and they they get a 100% match rate yeah right. it's a, it's a yeah. cool right. it's a cool idea I'll but leave, again I'll leave it to you whether to spare your audience the, the spoiler or not. <laughs> no no I'll, I'll leave it in but yeah. a, again you wouldn't do you need those avatars to be conscious surely as long as they behave in exactly the same way as the as the human in the real world does, you can run oh, yeah. the, the experiment. Yeah, yeah. No, but my point is that if we don't understand how consciousness arises in the first place, we might inadvertently produce it in some system that we're, you know, where we don't intend to produce it. Right. right. Well, like, a dumb algorithm would have been fine, but we produce something conscious and which can suffer. And you know, so that's just the flip side of this other concern which is we could build we will build things that seem conscious hmm. and we and and they may not be and yet i think we will will you know you know following from that that westworld example i think we will feel like you know kind of basic mental health and social health de- requires that we we more or less assume that they're conscious hmm. right because it's just going to seem you know if you find someone I mean, if you have a friend who has a robot made uh, who looks exactly like a person and acts exactly like a person, and you find out that, you know, just for the he- hell of it, he, you know, raped her or, you know, cut her head off, um, you will feel differently about that friend, right? Like, it'll yeah. take a certain kind of person to to treat something that's truly humanoid badly, and and that's a, that's a lesson we will all learn once we're in the presence of of this technology and and so it's um you know it'll be weird but i think we will i think many people will just lose sight of the fact that not that that the emergence of consciousness is still an interesting question because i i think we we will get there before we understand consciousness i mean that that, that mm. you know i'm assuming i think we will have truly compelling Turing, te- Turing test uh, passing AI that will be and that will stick into. I mean, you know, it'll it'll happen. You know, I, I would assume I would assume it'll happen in this order. I think we'll have AI that passes the Turing test before we can build convince convincingly humanoid. You know, uh, oh, wrappings for it. I mean, I think the right. robotics will be a much much trickier challenge the mechanics to make it look yeah. like a human being is a much bigger challenge than just having a i mean having a sort of a siri or like what was exactly. the what was the joaquin phoenix was it joaquin phoenix and scarlett johansson I, the movie yeah her. her that's right yeah but you know having something that you can talk to that responds to you as if it were a human i mean that's that's got to be coming pretty soon it's getting really good and it's improving so much every yeah. year that you can imagine that happening within the foreseeable future but i i reckon i'll be in the grave before you get something that actually is indistinguishable from a human being from in, in terms of facial expressions and ticks and robotics and all of that sort of stuff but it's it is an interesting thought experiment that you that you pose which is that there may not be an alignment there may not be a necessary correlation between things that seem to 
inter- interface with us as if they were conscious and things that actually are conscious. You know, we might we might get start building computer programs that are so sophisticated that they start whirring away with their own sense of themselves, uh, and we're completely ignorant of that. And at the same time, we might be building somewhat more simple sort of general intelligence humanoid talky bots that where the lights are out that's an interesting development that we're, i think we are we are on the cusp of let's um that's let's let's future. let's get towards the end of this uh, the end of this marathon uh, sam i i was rereading yuval noah harari the other day and thinking about what a huge scope and a huge picture he has on the world and uh, how much how many of us spend so much time squabbling about either culture wars or partisan politics how do you think about your legacy uh how do you think about what you want to contribute and how timeless it can or should be and how much of your attention and time has been squandered or does get squandered on stuff that in 20 years won't matter um well i, I do think some of the the more tawdry stuff like, you know, Trump really does matter. Right. I mean, so I think, you know, I think Yuval's life is probably improved by not getting into the weeds on things like Trump. And Yuval incidentally is a a very committed meditator. I mean, he spends about two or three months a year on retreat at this Mm. point and, and still gets all his stuff done. So he's, he's very efficient. And, um, yeah, he tends to stay out of the fray, but I, I do think the fray matters. And I, and I think it's, you know, for instance, if Trump gets reelected um, and I haven't done everything I could do to prevent that, um, I will feel horrible. And I think his reelection would matter enormously. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, Biden is going to change the world um, utterly for the better, but g- giving us four more... To, to, America telling the world that, you know, we're doubling down on Trump, you know, with all that has gone wrong and uh, we want four more years of this. I think that really does matter and would would set us back uh, a very long ways. And we've already been set back a long ways under Trump, I think. So um, it's not all that time isn't wasted. I mean, it's painful and it, it can seem um, it can seem uh like a waste of time. I mean, one can one could reasonably wonder what is the the real result of paying attention to any of this. It's, it's more or less going to happen with or without one's efforts. But you know, for for me, I do feel like I have a, enough of a platform where I can I, I stand a chance of shifting the conversation on on any given topic. And so it it does seem like a a kind of moral responsibility to be somewhat engaged in in politics. Um, but I, you know, I for for a long time I've been picking my moments, and sp- I've certainly spent much less time there than than I you know did a year and a half ago, say, uh, because it just again it's, it's it's a quality of life consideration, um, and uh, but you know I, I do it's like I, I it's hard to know I, I don't spend much time thinking about legacy. I, I do spend a little time thinking about the current perception of me and whether that matters and, and whether I want to navigate differently in light of what I notice happening. And again, I'm spending much less time looking at what's coming back on me, uh, coming back at me on social media. But insofar as I do look, I I, I occasionally 
respond to it. And um, I don't know, I have a very unusual life around this now because especially with the the um, the launch of my meditation app, I have two totally different public facing lives, mm. right? But my, my app is you know, the, the, the Sam Harris who created waking up the, the meditation app and the Sam Harris who, uh, produces the, the making sense podcast and, and, um, you know, I guess you know, the, the writer version of me falls into this same bin for the most part. Um, they, they have two totally different lives with respect to the the audience reaction and just what comes back, I mean, it's just. And if I hadn't created the the app, I would have really lost sight of the possibility of having a totally positive engagement with the world. I mean, so you know, as you know, my my uh, my podcast and my books deal with you know, fairly controversial issues a lot of the time, not entirely, but, you know, uh, you know, talking about the, you know, the civilizational contest between theocratic Islam and, and secular modernity and, you know, theocratic Christianity and secular modernity. And so, you know, that, that culture war is a, is a place where I've spent a lot of time, um, and then get, I mean, just, just those two topics alone, you know, essentially the same topic, you know, religion versus, versus reason, um, the, the amount of blowback I've gotten personally from that has, has been immense and it just doesn't stop. And, but then, you know, on top of that, I touch topics like, you know, racism in the United States and, and police violence, right? Like that, you know, so that's just an awful radioactive topic that if you demur from the, the, uh, the, the party line on the left at the moment gets you defenestrated and, um, and so it's it's a I have that experience on a daily basis as someone who who writes and and podcasts, but in my in the app space, all I get is pure positive. I mean, with it with the tiniest you know the 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 one in a thousand uh, response that is kind of off, and 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 more often than not, a a a an import from my podcast life. Right. Mm. You know, someone will leave a review in the app store. Like, why would I want to <laughs> want to learn meditation from a racist? Yeah. You know, or Islamophobe. Right. But apart from that or someone, you know, we, we, we wound up crashing their their old, you know, Samsung phone and they're pissed off and, and they didn't get customer service. Apart from that, it is just a a just a fire hose of of gratitude and and a complete understanding of my intentions pointed my way 24 hours a day. It's just, and, then and it's just, in terms of the, when you contrast that to the other, do you wish you were more accepted by the, the media elite? Um, well, not, not really for that. I mean, you know, it's, it's my, my focus isn't there. I mean, I, I wish it were not controversial to talk about some very important things that, that shouldn't be controversial. Right, like I, so, I think we're just paying an enormous price for the dysfunction of our discourse around you know various things. But um, yeah, it's it's not so much the media elite. It's it's more that the because the truth is the, uh, the the people I consider elite are people who 
I have, you know, uh, very good relationships with, right? Like, like the, the kinds of guests I, I would book on my podcast, you know, like you know, scientists and writers. Mm, and mm. I mean, these, these are people who are not uh, trashing me no, but, but I mean that's it's, why I it, said media. The the thing is that the one of the prices that you've paid for uh, for choosing the career that you've chosen and talking about things in the way that you do is yes, you're going to have all of that uh, sort of uh, in group goodwill from uh, Silicon Valley, from science, from you know cr- to put it crudely, the West Coast. But uh, I can fully imagine that if you were at a party on the upper upper east side of Manhattan and it was full of people who work for for Vox and for a bunch of and for the New York Times that uh that you would uh, you would find yourself trailing a certain sort of smell and that, you know you would get you would get you would get looks uh and I wonder whether that you think that whether that hurts well I guess it's, I could be wrong about this but you know I have I have felt all the way up until I mean maybe things have changed at the times recently I mean you know we know Barry Weiss just resigned and and it, it, there does seem to be kind of a, a woke mutiny over there at the Times. But up until very recently, I've had the sense that, you know, I could always publish an op-ed in the New York Times or the or a piece in the Atlantic or someplace if I wanted to, right? And I just haven't, you know, just for a variety of reasons, it's, it hasn't been important for me to even try to do that, right? But my my experience has not been one of of being ignored by or or, you know, much less rejected by mainstream publications like that um but it's a um and, and again that could be changing i mean the, I mean, the voxification of journalism has proceeded uh quite uh, quickly in, in recent years so it, it how would you much define more... that to people who aren't familiar with vox well it's, it, it is much more it's it's captured by a, a new kind of left-wing orthodoxy, right? Where where the the distinction between social activism and journalism, or social activism and and science even has has been blurred to the point of of non-existence for many people. And so you have someone like Ezra Klein, who I'm sure thinks he's a journalist, but who doesn't function like one when he is on certain topics and. Uh, you know, he has a, some internal model of of the good he wants to do in the world that doesn't entail being intellectually honest because he's on the right side of a certain problem. And so he's going to be dishonest in the way he spreads information. Uh, well, on, I mean, just, know, just, just, to pu- just to push back, he would obviously <laughs> dispute that characterization because he would he would say that his commitment to journalism uh, is one where uh, he has a he has a a commitment to looking at broader, bigger trends that you're ignorant of, or that he's seeing a picture that he's seeing he's seeing a place where you fit into a larger a larger conversation that you're choosing to be unaware of when it comes to things like race and privilege and stuff like that. But he wouldn't concede right. that he's you know that he's well, lying well, no, or being yeah, a, he, yeah no he wouldn't he wouldn't concede that, but he he could be shown to be culpable of that i mean it's just it's just it's just not true it's just like i mean i just i don't know if you heard the podcast i did with with uh page harden the the um yeah i did that's partly why i'm asking this because it felt uh it felt like you were defensive or um or hurt or 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 needlessly um focusing on something that to the to someone who's not in that game 
feels petty. Right, but see, it's it's not petty. I mean, I, I understand how if you're not if you're not following the plot, it can seem, and, and this is why it's a to, it's it is just a losing game to tr- <laughs> and a waste to try of time. To... Which is why I came back. Which is why I raised you all know Harari no, as well, because like, it, but it's not a waste of time. I, I guarantee you, if people were going around telling everyone in sight that Yuval was a was a racist, right? At a, at a certain point, he would notice, and he would notice how it's harming his reach as a scholar, and he would care about it, right? I mean, he would have to care about it. If he, if he cares about being published, at a certain point, it matters if there's a consensus that you're a racist asshole, right? And there are people who are working very, very hard, I mean, literally, who, who virtually make it a full-time job to try to form a consensus like that around certain people and that that just interests me i mean there's a lesson to be drawn there because every virtually you know i I would like to i mean more and more i'm trying to live in such a way that you know it's not going to look what i was paying attention to isn't going to look absurd the day i drop dead right right? Mm. um i mean that that's the kind of life i want to live and and so i i do think we're all suffering from a a context in which misunderstanding and misunderstanding and you know willful and otherwise is being amplified and a principle of charity is being reduced so you know like like basically we're all being encouraged to to form the the least charitable but possible not to say plausible but possible interpretation of our opponent's words and we'll stick to that there's a there's a revolutionary fervor in the asm you know it as much as i do and we're trying to have conversations that elide it uh and that well that avoid it and that that stick to the facts but there is a there's a there's a smell there's a kind of you know the bastille is being stormed and if you have to break a few eggs along the way then i think that's the that's the sensibility and i think the perspective of you from some of these these quarters is that you're willfully naive of the big ethical battle that's underway, or you're a pawn in uh, in your in your own narrative, right. and that for them, like uh, that's that's why you're something that has to be has to be taken out because you're a you know their 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 glorious future can't exist if if you, if people like you continue to point out the ways in in which it falls right. short of its aspirations. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing if it's someone like me who. Uh, whenever the topic arises, uh, admits that wealth inequality has to be one of our main concerns now in in society. Uh, if I'm someone who can't be uh, thought of as an ally on any level, you know, the, the left has bigger problems, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of people who who don't agree with me on that topic. I mean, maybe maybe the world was always this way, and I, you know, I just didn't notice. Maybe with you know articles and pamphlets and books and public speeches, you know, you you could get the same kind of discord. But it, it just it's feeling very different to me, and it's it's creating a a um, a very ugly funhouse mirror effect mm. in all directions. And I, well, I, no, I think I think the, I think the pace changes the valence. The pace the pace yeah. changes what it is. It's it, it you know it turns there is a, an actual uh, qualitative nature 
to the to the to the impact that that the speed of social media has. It's not just quantitative. It doesn't. It's not just that you get the same thing that you would have had over the course of a hundred years in one month. That month actually distorts it itself. Change, as changes a result. what you get. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Sam, uh, it's great to talk to you as, as always. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. And when uh, we can eventually fly out of this country again, I look forward to a uh, to a sunset beer somewhere. Yeah, I look forward to that. Yeah, <laughs> may it come sooner than sooner rather than later. Exactly. Thanks, Sam. Thanks.